Hello, and welcome to the Drum History Podcast. Today, uh, we are back with Mr. Paul Wells. Paul, welcome back on. Thank you so much, Bart. Great to be here again. Yes. So this is part two of our look at the drums of Neil Peart. Um, we're picking up today um, on the Tama kit where we left off uh, around 82. I want to preface this and say to people, um, if you didn't listen to part one, um, then you can go back and check that out or you can start here. It doesn't really matter. Uh, we're recording this before part one is released. So, Paul, I'm going to bet. Uh, I think it's a safe assumption that when part one is released, YouTube servers crash because so many people are so excited about it. We've oh, received Nobel Peace Prizes. Um, <laughs> everyone is just in their mind is blown from our uh, deep dive into Neil's kits. I think that's a safe bet. World, world peace breaks out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. War is over. <laughs> War is over. Yeah. What's the uh, it sounds it's like the end of uh, Ghostbusters uh, dogs and cats living together. Yes. Mass hysteria. Yeah, yeah, it happens just because of <laughs> the drum kits of Neil Peart on YouTube and the podcast. Yes. Yes. Life changing. Life changing. So, um, Paul, <laughs> let's. Uh, oh, before we start, you mentioned to me that uh, there's some kind of stuff to clean up or, or, or add to the first batch um, of kits we talked about. So uh, l- yeah, let's hear d- what you got. Despite my extensive notes, I did forget a couple of things. So um, a couple of things I wanted to mention. Um, first off uh so we're starting with the uh the slingerland kit the second slingerland kit so as i said he received that kit in may of 77 and around that time there were a couple of photo shoots that were done um by um i believe they were all done by a photographer uh named finn costello and you can see all of these on getty images um, he was a, a well-known photographer that photographed a lot of rock stars. And there was um, a photo shoot that I think he did in Chicago, somewhere around the summer of 77, where apparently Neil, for whatever reason, that week was experimenting with using Ludwig's silver dot heads on the entire kit. So I mentioned before his preferred head setup in this era was silver dots on the concert toms, six, eight, 10, and 12, but then Evan's heads on the double headed rack toms. The chrome Um, uh, finish. Exactly. Chrome finish on top and then a blue hydraulic on the bottom. However, it's, it was literally like, um, you know, maybe a week he was using Ludwig silver dots, but man, I mean, these photos, they're great photos, but they're, they're really, really common. They're, they're, They've been published in so many different books and so many different magazines. And I think it leads people to believe that, oh, Neil used silver dots on all his toms in the 70s. And it really was literally just the week those those photos were taken. It's like an anomaly. So the photos that I sent you to use for this um, YouTube video, I think that I actually gave you a photo, one of those Finn Costello photos that um, it should be designated uh neil with silver dots so so you could see that and i think a lot of people will recognize that photo or that photo shoot but um you know every other photo i've ever seen from that era he's using the evans head combination two other little things and these are really nerdy things (laughs) the next album cycle hemispheres i mentioned that he added um a set of uh tune symbols called either crotales or crotales i think Mm -hmm. crotales Sure. Um, yeah. An octave that he had mounted behind him above the uh, the tubular chimes. He also had a single 
um, crotal that he had mounted on the kit just to the right of the hi-hat on a little Ludwig um, hoop mount cymbal holder. Um, and he used that in the uh, title track, Hemispheres, and he used it um, at a couple points in that tune. And then he later used it um, really famously in the tune YYZ, um, the beginning, the intro, he he taps out the rhythm on a crotal oh, before cool. the band comes in. Ding, 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 yeah. ding, ding, I mean, ding, th- that's, th- that's a crotal. It, to me, as this just like drummer, I always thought that would be like the, I think a lot of people would maybe think that's just the bell of a ride or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's very and, clear or, or a Zill bell or something, which is probably before yeah, yeah, that existed. Yeah. But, um, uh, or a triangle or something. Or yeah, triangle, but it is actually yeah. a crotal. Yeah. And it's when you hear it, it's a specific sound. You can't quite get that sound from a, uh, a Zill bell. Yeah. I, I, when I see people covering that tune. They usually play like the bell of the hi-hat or something like that. And that approximates yeah. it. But, but yeah, sure. that's actually what he used. One last thing that I forgot to mention. Um, I had mentioned... Um, starting in 78 or so, he starts using this three Chinese symbol setup with the Wuhan, the 20-inch Zildjian Swish, and the 18-inch Zildjian Pang. Um, the Pang, he uses without rivets, just kind of as is, but at some point on the Moving Pictures tour, so I noticed this, there's a photo of his kit at the Moving Pictures recording sessions, um, which would have been late 1980, and there are no rivets in the Pang. It looks just like it did throughout the 70s. But there's a photo from the Moving Pictures tour where suddenly the Pang has six rivets installed. Hmm. And every time you see it after that, it has six rivets installed. So either he got bored and wanted to change the sound and had somebody put six rivets in it, or possibly he broke the Pang or just got a new one that already had six rivets. So that's... A, a tiny detail, but I love those kind of tiny yeah. details when it comes to these sort of things. So yeah, no, very I wanted interesting. to, I wanted to clarify those things. Um, and sorry for forgetting them. Um, um, I think I, if I try really hard, I can maybe forgive you for forgetting. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, they're probably going to take back the, uh, the Noble peace prize that <laughs> yeah. I won. We just know, lost it. Yeah, yeah. That's too bad. World peace. Right. It has ended. Um, <laughs> so I appreciate you clarifying that though. Cause I, sure. I was, Paul and I were talking before um, that, you know, as far as I can tell, and you would, you know, better than me, they're really, I'm hoping this can live for a long time as like a really definitive look at, at uh, Neil's drums on YouTube um, and as a podcast format, um, because, you know, there's books, there's magazines, but you know, every, it, it should be on each platform. So I think you're, you're yeah. the great choice for this. And uh, for people just now tuning into part two, Paul is a absolute Neil, you know, fanatic with his gear. Uh, he's a professor of jazz drumming at Juilliard. He's a performer. He's he's the real deal and knows his stuff. Um, if that's all cleared up, then why don't we move on here and you can pick us uh, yeah. up here in, in 82, correct? Yeah. Well, we left off with the Candy Apple Red Tama kit. Um, yep. I think I described that kit um, being um, a thinner shell version of the regular superstar kit you know super the thomas superstars at the time were six ply birch um the uh the the candy apple red kit was four ply birch and um that was a custom finish um so my understanding i don't know if i mentioned this but um in talking to bob milherat who owns that kit now um he was able to find out that uh the candy apple red finish was initially done by the percussion center at fort wayne 
I did what I think I'm I forgot to mention a little bit just of the sound of that kit though sure. because it it's it's a um you know Neil wanted to he wanted a thinner shell kit because he wanted more resonance he wanted more tonality and more resonance and I think you hear that if you listen to the drum sound on moving pictures versus signals and the moving picture sound is amazing that's the regular superstar uh thomas and it's got an amazing attack this sort of great sort of clangy attack um but i really hear on signals more kind of um uh i guess more tonality more sort of bloom to the Mm. note Mm. there's more um i mean the attack is still there but there's you hear more of the the actual note of the drum um and mostly you hear this difference on the on the 12 13 15 18 double-headed tom-toms that's yeah. that's really i think you know kind of the the meat of the kit for him and and those sizes you know gave him the opportunity to to you know i think make the most of those shells and i mentioned before that he had changed the bottom heads um, oh, yeah to thinner yeah. bottom heads and i think that probably helped too but i do think there was a sound difference a, a noticeable sound difference with those candy apple red drums so Signals tour ends, I think, around May of 83. They take a little bit of time off, but they are they almost immediately start writing new songs. And Neil, I guess, was getting more interested in wanting to utilize electronic drums. So electronic drums, 1983, I mean, it, it, just just watch any MTV videos from 1983, and you're likely going to see a lot of electronic drums. That was yeah. a really big trend in those days and you just heard that stuff um you know either drum machines or simmons toms or both on nearly everything that was happening in those days as far as pop music and and even a lot of rock music and i think he wanted to get into those sounds i think you know bill bruford was doing amazing things with electronics um with simmons uh sds5 drums originally which were all analog um, really amazing sounding electronic drums with the famous hexagon pads. So Neil didn't want to replace his kit. He didn't want to like say, okay, well, I'll get rid of these toms and put Simmons toms here instead, or didn't want to really change anything about his core setup. So he came up with this great idea of a secondary kit. And instead of the secondary kit being on like a second riser next to the main kit, the idea was like, okay, I'm going to put it behind me. I'm going to have this, you know, is this 360 degree drum kit that surrounded him completely. So <laughs> this of course meant that he had to get rid of the, the stuff that normally was behind him, which at the time would have been the tubular chimes. Um, the crotals actually moved up to the, the little rack on the side where he had wind chimes and things mounted. Um, but he gets rid of the tubular chimes and he gets rid of one of the two gong bass drums um, he still uses the 22-inch gong bass drum, which is mounted sort of as a floor tom next to his 18-inch floor tom. Um, but he gets rid of the 20 that was up on a stand behind mm. him. So, um, And then he adds this really interesting kit. And it's like, it's not in any way, other than there being four toms, three sort of rack toms and a floor tom, it's not very similar to his kit in the front. So he has a single bass drum. And it's an 18-inch bass drum. And this goes back to when we were talking in the last episode about his first few kits, how he had an 18-inch bass drum with his very first kit. And when he got his first 
professional quality kit, his Rogers kit, that had an 18-inch bass drum. And then he got a second 18-inch bass drum for that kit Hmm, to make it a double 18-inch bass drum kit. So he really had a thing for 18-inch bass drums. And when putting together this back kit, he used an 18, which I think is very cool. Yeah, it's it's Um, just like it's part of the story of Neil. I feel like he kind of... Like his drum kits, I feel like now they're like iconic and legendary and we all, you know, drool over them. But I think he realized the like the through line of his drums and the he kept like like the all gold hardware and, and certain mm-hmm. things. He kind of kept uh, he was a very smart guy, very like thematic with what he was doing uh, the whole yeah. way through. Yeah, yeah. And I think he was aware of, you know, that it would be neat for him to to go back to something he used to use, or, you know, yeah. it would be sort of, I mean, he, I think he was in some ways very not sort of anti-sentiment, sentimental, you know, like not wanting to look backwards, yeah, but at sure. the same time, maybe he had some fondness for the, his first kid or his first couple of kids. And so maybe that was a little throwback to that. Definitely. Um, so he's got the 18 inch bass drum. He's got a second snare drum. And originally at that time for the first few tours, he uses this surround kit he uses an identical snare to his Slingerland number one snare. Um, they they track down another five and a half by fourteen Slingerland artist series snare, um, but he did spe- specify in interviews. You know, I've got the exact same snare, but it doesn't sound quite as good as the main one. Interesting. You know, which was painted kit. red, right? Yes. So so yeah, I I, I think we mentioned that it was originally yep. a copper finished drum, and then. Um, for the Signals tour, he decided to get it painted to match yeah. uh, the rest of the kit. He was apparently afraid to even take it apart to get painted because he was afraid that it might somehow change the sound of it. Um, I get it that. apparently didn't. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. He was a little superstitious about that drum. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so they, they had an identical snare. And then kind of above, just above the snare was a ride cymbal, um, another 22-inch ride. Um, and if you listen to recordings, the ride on his back kit sounds a lot brighter and a lot sort of heavier and pingier than the ride that he had on the main kit. Um, I don't know if it was, you know, uh, I, I, we talked about that ride before the Asco ride. Yep. And, um, I don't know if maybe he just said to Zildjian at the time, like, oh, just give me, you know, the modern equivalent of that. And Zildjian were making cymbals a bit heavier by, you know, 83 than they were in 74, Hmm. potentially. So I think he ended up with a bit of a heavier ride. So you can hear that on some of the recordings that it's a pingier ride. And then he's got four Simmons toms and then a couple of crash cymbals and another Chinese cymbal and another pair of 13-inch hi-hats. And... It's really an interesting setup because it's it's a bit different than his sort of main setup. So it gets him into some different territory. He plays some different sort of fills and different yeah. patterns and things. But what I really love about this setup and what I think – I know I didn't realize this for quite a while. And I think a lot of people maybe also don't realize that just because he's on this back kit, like if he's sitting back there, he can still – hit and reach a lot of stuff from the main kit. Sure. So he's got, if he's sitting behind the 18 inch bass drum and the Simmons toms, he also has his concert toms up here to his right. And he also has a timbali from the front kit over yeah. on his, on his right. He went from using 
Um, before he added the electronics, he had a set of two Timbales. He had a 13 and a 14. Mm-hmm. Um, when he added the Simmons kit, he got rid of one of the Timbales um, and put the Simmons floor tom, basically. The Simmons tom is there instead. So, gotcha. Yeah, so he still has access to the Timbali. He's got access. The gong bass drum is right here, just to the left of his hi-hat. The, um, all of the other Chinese symbols and also his other ride symbol the main kit ride symbol is to his left. And if you listen to songs like um, Red Sector A, he does these really cool patterns where he has a hand on his on his the, the back kit ride and his left hand on the main kit ride. And he's doing these 16th note patterns between Man. two ride symbols. And that's really cool. It's a little bit like the kind of um, two surface riding that Steve Gadd did you know starting in the 70s where he sure. would have his left hand on the hi-hat right hand on the ride doing yeah. 16th so neil would he, neil did that too like in subdivisions and some other tunes but then now he's doing it between two ride symbols so that's cool the mixing of the uh electronic and the acoustic kits has been something that i've always thought is so cool I've never had the opportunity to do it because I've never really done it and you, you kind of need it to be with a pa and loud enough yeah. where your electronics can get up to the volume to have real symbols mixed with them. So yeah, uh, it's something that I always think is so neat and would love to try someday. Neil's obviously in a very, you know, he's there in a, like an arena or something, but it's a different pad feel. And I've always heard famously yeah. that those pads didn't feel great on your hands. The original ones were very, very hard. Yeah. 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 And, and actually the, the first, so he, the first time he used this setup was um, in September of 83. Rush did a, a series of shows at Radio City Music Hall here in New York City. Um, I think it was like three or four nights or something like that. Um, it wasn't really part of a tour. It was kind of between the Signals tour and Grace Under hmm. Pressure coming out. So they debuted some of those new songs that they were working on that would appear on Grace Under Pressure, and he debuted that kit. But at the time, um, he had the original Simmons pads, the very hard pads. But by the time Grace Under Pressure, the tour came around, he got the new pads that were a lot softer. Yeah, with the red back. Play on. Yes, exactly, which was cool because that the red back matches yeah. the kid, and that just totally. looks super cool. Can I ask a question that's like mm-hmm. probably that's the most basic question that almost like like your mom would ask? All right, from the from the aerial view here, does anyone mm. like? Is there any record of like how does one get into this Ooh. fully yeah circle drum set? So you could see from the overhead shots, the 18 inch bass drum has the uh, Wuhan Chinese symbol mounted off of it. And there's a little pathway between that and like the concert tom, the six inch concert tom that he could kind of squeeze through. And his roadie would actually pull the um, the bass drum back by the cymbal arm that's holding the Wuhan cymbal. He would kind of pull it back so Neil could squeeze in through that way. But it was not an easy kit to get in and no. out. No, I feel like drummers, um, like no matter what, if we're in a room that's completely empty, we will find a way to put ourselves in a corner to make it awkward to get into our drum set. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> it just yeah. happens. Even Neil Peart has to do that uh, to like yeah. kind of slide something forward. Uh, that's I, cool. I remember as a I remember as a kid thinking that it would be cool if he like parachuted down into that kit or something. <laughs> a bungee like that. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to sort of think like, oh, maybe that's how he gets it back there. It's a parachute. Um, yeah. So a couple other things about the electronics I should mention. So this, so he was using initially a Simmons SDS five brain, and although he only had four pads set up, the brain actually had five 
units. It had five voices. So you, mm. you, the, the brain would have like, you know, a bass drum channel, a snare drum channel, or toms, you know, whatever. You could configure them however you wanted. And his SDS-5 brain had four tom channels and a snare drum channel. So all I really hear on those recordings is tom sounds, but, you know, classic Simmons, like, kind yeah. of tom sounds. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know what he may have used the snare channel for or why he had that, but it was it was there. There are photos where you can you can see five channels. Okay. Um now another really important um electronic voice that enters his kit at this point is the Simmons clap trap. Okay. So this is a really kind of lesser known um electronic instrument i think actually it was put out by somebody else initially and then simmons bought it and it became the simmons clap trap so it was basically a really simple little it's like a small unit about this big and it was a very simple kind of white noise generator that could be used to make sort of white noise percussion percussive sounds yeah and um it, I guess I don't know how different people would sort of trigger it because it was really just a little unit that you could kind of plug something into. But the way that Neil triggered it was with a foot switch and he had a foot switch that triggered the clap trap to the left of each of his hi-hat pedals. Um, so he had one on the front kit just to the left of the pedal and he had one on the back kit just to the left of the pedal. And you can see one of the photos I sent you is an overhead shot of the red kit Yep. And you can see, um, I think next to the hi-hat stand on the main kit, you can see a little black square. That's the, the the foot pedal trigger for the clap trap. So he would take his left foot off of the hi-hat and hit this little trigger, and it would make a sound. Now, it was programmable, but usually when you, you hear the sound kind of like, <coughs> like a clap sound, kind of, sure. you know, a little similar to actually the sound you get from... Um, uh, from like the clap trap um, or the clap stack, sorry, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. Um, Istanbul Agop make and but there's some digital. other companies that make that. Exactly. A digital, well, analog technically, but, analog, but an electronic, yeah. an analog, uh, analog electronic version. You hear it on almost every tune on Grace Under Pressure. Okay. He was really into the clap trap and you can hear him take his foot off the pedal. Like you'll, you'll hear the hi-hat closed. And then when he goes over to hit the claptrap, the hi-hat opens with the claptrap. And he would often use it as kind of like something to emphasize the backbeat on the snare. Oh, that's you know, cool. He would, yeah. So you hear it all over Grace Under Pressure. You hear it all over Power Windows. Um, for example, the tune Big Money, um, in the intro of the tune, you hear this big snare drum and like clap sound. Um, Cool. That's that's him playing the snare drum and the claptrap simultaneously. Yeah, um, and I and, think the power and, of uh, white noise and like signal generator, tone generators, and stuff mm. is actually really powerful. Like almost yeah. like you think of like the drums and like Closer by Nine Inch Nails of how it's just like this. Like it's yeah, it's yeah, yeah. very cool and it's very uh, you know it's industrial sounding yes. and it and it and it makes you think of things that aren't you know they're percussive but not traditional drums or you know it's yeah. just sort of alternate sounds or like a thunderclap kind of sound yeah I think drummers have gone for replicating some of those sort of things for a long time agree um yeah it's 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 very cool so um that becomes actually the left foot trigger now he eventually 
replaces it with a, a, a more sophisticated pedal that that triggers samples and stuff. But that becomes a really important part of his sort of sound arsenal um, throughout the 80s and 90s. And it's something that I think is really cool. And it starts with the claptrap. So on Grace Under Pressure, I think that he was so enthralled with or at least intrigued by the Simmons sound and using electronics that I think I have the feeling he decided I want to use, I want to find a way to use this sound on every tune on this album, because every, every track on Grace Under Pressure has some Simmons drum in it somewhere. Even I think the tune Kid Gloves, I think he hits it once, but it's in there. It's in every tune. Yeah, you know, so I think that's kind of cool. That that's the sort of meticulousness he would he would approach these things with. You know, like I'm really into this. I'm going to make this work in every tune on this record, but not um, jam it down your throat. And he's going to no. keep it tasteful. And of course, and, of yeah. course, yeah. yeah, it's going to be it's going to be musical. And yeah, so um, I uh, oh, I guess an important development also for the Grace Under Pressure tour is the way he figures out to make this. 360 degree kit work was to develop a rotating drum riser which Uh, yeah because you have you don't want to see the back of neil's head which is what he did when they played it at radio city they he didn't have that revolving riser yet so um he talked about this in interviews um he was actually facing the back he was like facing the back (laughs) of the stage he had his back to the audience when he played the the kit behind him Gotcha. So I think he was like, yeah, this isn't going to work. We got to figure out a way to do this. <laughs> sure. He's not the first person to use a revolving drum riser, but I probably think he's was probably the most famous for it. I remember seeing them and whenever the riser would revolve during the drum solo, the whole crowd would just be like, yes, that's the yeah. coolest thing ever. Because it is the coolest thing it, ever. It oh, is yeah. the coolest thing ever. I mean, and, and it's totally practical. It's like, well, what a better, what better way to, you know, for him to face the right direction. But man, it's cool, right? <laughs> yeah, which the budget of they they obviously, of course, they realized it. I mean, he's a he's on the cover of drum magazines. He's huge. Neil is such a big draw for yeah. Rush fans in general that you to put oh, yeah. that money and budget into it is obviously worth it. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, they were they were very visually oriented. They yeah. always had a great show. Always had cutting edge lights, um, rear screen projections, lasers, pyro, all that stuff. They always had the the latest and coolest stuff and always incorporated in, in really creative and cool ways in their shows. I remember yeah. it was a very big deal in the 80s when you started to see lasers in rock shows. You know, that yeah. was that was really pretty amazing. I, I think maybe Pink Floyd might have been the first band to do that. I know they did like rear screen stuff. That was a big deal to us when I was a kid. I mean, if you had lasers, you must be good, right? <laughs> you have to be good. And then I've seen the the fad of, I don't know if it was 80s or early 90s. I believe, I think it was 80s, but the seemed to be a bit of a fad that Neil didn't do, but it's just of that time of the like drum vest where it had pads in the vest oh, and, yeah. and like, like Mick Fleetwood or a couple Mick other guys Fleetwood. would come up and, um, and do it. Yeah. Uh, 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 Joey Kramer from Aerosmith did ah, that in his drum makes solo. Sense. Yeah, yeah, and I think um I think maybe Tommy Lee had something like that going on as well. Probably. Yeah, it's Neil not never... great though. It's not <laughs> like and there's well, somewhere there's a huge wire harness behind them. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I do think some drummers wanted to be able to get out front, wanted to be able to like I, kind of yeah. you know, walk around and interact with the crowd in that way not be stuck behind the drums. But I know if I I I think Neil was probably the I I think he talked about this too 
I think he was the kind of drummer who was kind of comfortable with a bunch of stuff hiding him, you know, that he could sort of hide behind or at least feel safe behind. I know I feel like that. I don't like standing in front of a crowd talking. Like I, if I stand in front of like, you know, eight students at school, I'm a little bit on edge, but I mean, I can sit behind a drum kit in front of thousands of people and it's doesn't really affect me at all. Yeah. Um, so, but I think having that, that shield there helps. <laughs> sure. Symbol Swap is the first and only online symbol rental service in the U.S., giving drummers the flexibility to try out various symbols and experiment with different sounds before committing to purchase. Whether you're looking to upgrade your kit or you're a seasoned drummer going out on tour, symbol rentals are cost-effective for upcoming gigs, recording sessions, or discovering new sounds. Browse through Symbol Swap's extensive collection of symbols and add those that you would like to try to your cart. Then just check out, and the symbols you selected will be conveniently delivered to your door. Now you get to experience any symbol on your own kit. You like them, you can extend your rental or choose to purchase. Not what you're looking for? Then just send it back with the prepaid shipping label. SymbolSwap carries over 20 brands from the top names and symbols, as well as one-of-a-kind handmade symbols by independent symbol makers from around the globe. Go to SymbolSwap.com and use promo code DRUMHISTORY for 10% off your next symbol rental. That's SymbolSwap.com with promo code DRUMHISTORY for 10% off. Can you remind me, I meant to, uh, I, I know we talked about it before, but at this point, what pedals is he using? Oh, uh, that's great. Actually, it's around this time that he switches fully to Tama Camco pedals. Okay, because that's an interesting time. Yeah, he was still floating around with the um, with the uh, Ludwig Speed King. Right. Um, sort of in and out. Because uh, I, I, I know he had Tama Camcos because when he gave away the Rosewood kit, the Rosewood kit was the first kit that he gave away through a contest in Modern Drummer around 82 or so. Um, once he got the red kit in the equipment list, he actually listed Tama Camco pedals as the the pedals that would come with the kit. But he was maybe going back and forth between Camcos and Speed Kings. Those are really different feeling pedals. Totally, um, that would not be an easy transition to make. I think um, for me, as somebody who uses, um, I, I used either Tama Camcos or DW um, the the very basic DW five thousand without the footboard, but yeah. that type of pedal that that you know, has its roots in the, in the, um, the Gretsch floating action pedal. Yeah. The Martin um, Fleetfoot or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The Martin Fleetfoot, right. If you're used to that kind of pedal, a Speed King is likely going to feel kind of weird to you. Um, although I know our, our buddy George Flutus switches back and forth between a Speed King and a a Camco. I've seen him use both on, on his videos, I think. Yeah. So he's able to do it, but, but yeah, I, I have a really hard time playing, um, Speed Kings. Yeah, and there's um, uh, just if anyone's more interested in that, I always like to tell people that like there's an episode on the history of the five thousand pedal that has yeah. stuff on that. There's an episode on the history of Speed King. Both of those are with Vincent uh, Ward, and then um, there is, and I think in the DW episode there's some info, and then the Tom episode yeah. there's some info. So yeah, uh, definitely check those out. Those are really great histories of those. Yeah, and, and I love Thank that you. somebody can talk about you know, the history of a single drum pedal for an hour or more. I mean, that's, that's really cool. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So where yeah, do we go so, from so, there? Well, we go to the uh, Power Windows album and tour, 1985, 86. And um, it's the same kit. The only thing that changes about the kit, well, the electronics change significantly. But before I get into that, I will say the only thing 
I think the only other thing that changed was um, he started experimenting with different TomTom heads again. And I mentioned that with the red kit, he's using Red Evans Rock heads, which is a double ply, kind of a heavy head. And then Red Evans TomTom heads on the bottom, which was a single ply head. And there's a photo that's in the book Chemistry, which is a, a kind of rare book that was that came out about 15 years ago, a little rush bio. Um, there is a photo of him at the Power Windows recording session from above. It's a great photo. You can see great detail of the kit. And he has Remo pinstripes on the tops of the toms. And then and then later on, so there are photos from the Power Windows tour where he has the red Evans heads. And the videos they did for the Power Windows album, Big Money and Mystic Rhythms, those probably would have been filmed in the fall of 85. He's got the red Evans heads. But there's tons of photos from midway through and later in the Power Windows tour where he's got uh, pinstripes, including some of the ones I, I sent you. The, the ones um, from behind the kit where you see a bunch of people kind of crowded around the kit, that's from a clinic that he did. Um, he did a couple of clinics in... Uh, 86. He did one for um, PIT, Percussion Institute of Technology, which is part of Musicians Institute in Los mm -hmm. Angeles. I think that was early in 86. I don't know exactly when, but then he did another one for the Percussion Center of Fort Wayne around May of 86. And I think that the photos, oh, May or March, somewhere around there, spring, um, the photos that I that I sent you, I believe are photos from the Fort Wayne, um, the Percussion Center of Fort Wayne clinic that he did. Cool. And you can see really nice detail of the kid. I wish I knew who took those photos because thank yeah. you, whoever took those photos. Yeah, they've really, been shared. I mean. They've been shared all over the internet, but they're they're great detail photos of the kit. So um very, very interesting um electronic changes for power windows because um Neil got very, very, very deep into sampling at this point. And initially it was very, very crude sampling by even by like kind of late 80s standards. Um, mm. So he got um, he started using a Simmons SDS7 brain. Um, when I say brain, that's what, you know, the, the sort of unit the the rack mount unit that controls you know, sure. that generates the sounds that the pads trigger. That's what I mean by a Simmons brain. I mentioned the Simmons SDS-5 brain. So he got an SDS-7. And the 7 was a really interesting instrument that um, a lot of people use. Bill Bruford uh, used this extensively from about 84, 83, 84 on. It's all over the King Crimson um, Three for Perfect Pair record. Mm -hmm. and, um so it was a it was a hybrid between analog and digital sounds, um, or actually analog and sampling, digital sampling. So it had a, 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 a an analog drum brain similar to the SDS five built in, but it also had the ability to load um, chips that were called. It, it was it was a type of like memory chip at the time called an EPROM, E P R O M, which stood for if I'm not mistaken erasable programmable read-only memory so you could basically put digital information onto this chip and then install it into the simmons sds5 Dig by digital information i mean a sample yeah, and yeah. then you could use your pad to trigger that sample so um 
these were really crude samples. It was 8-bit sampling, which was sort of the the, the crudest, sort of most lo-fi sampling. Um, that's kind of where sampling started. And by the mid-80s, I think, you know, you had the Fairlight and the Synclavier uh, that were already doing like 12 and 16-bit sampling, which was, mm-hmm. you know, much cleaner quality. But the the 8-bit samples, they were kind of cool. They're, they're, yeah, they, that's could popular only do, now. Like lo-fi. Yeah, right. As a retro thing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. So yeah. it was, it, you know, but they're kind of kind of a little dirtier sounding and, you know, very short. You can only get like about a second of sampling time. But Neil got yeah. really into sampling all kinds of found sounds. Um, you know, uh, he, he, he sampled some um, uh, ethnic drums. Um, he sampled like tabla and and like an African talking drum and some other, you know, sort of things like that. He he uses these sounds extensively on on this record on Power Windows. Mm. And he was um Rush were working with a producer on that album called Peter Collins. And Peter, this is the first time they worked with Peter. He ended up producing three or four of their uh records. And Peter really hated the Simmons like sound because it was by that point it was kind of overused you know played out yeah yeah so so he encouraged them to find an alternative and neil came up with this idea well i want it to sound like this like and they said well why don't we just sample your voice doing that (laughs) that's okay so they put a microphone in front of him he went and um they mixed that with the analog sound in the sds7 but all of the sort of low-pitched electronic kind of tom sounds you hear on power windows are actually neil's voice man um, and he referred to them as voice drums which is kind wow. of cool that is yeah. neat i so bet those cards it. are like uh like i've i've found some in a studio i worked at and we ended mm. up selling a bunch of them but they're like one megabyte card right. and but in the day they were probably like hundreds of dollars uh, oh at least yeah at least, yeah. yeah so simmons made a drum called the sds1 which was a standalone pad it was just the hexagonal pad, but it had this little additional thing at the end of it that you could stick one of those EPROMs in and actually just like, it would just trigger that sample right off of the, you know, on the pad, right? The, the thing built into neat. the pad. So he started, so he he used this these sort of sounds all over power windows. He also used the, the Simmons SDS-7 had its own unique kind of analog um, brain you know, or analog uh, synthesis style. And you hear that if you listen to the tune of Motion Detector, he's using a lot of SDS-7 type sounds. It's like a lot of kind of white noise type sounds and cool. um, just typical of that particular Simmons brain. And they took all of this stuff on tour, man. They, they on, on the Power Windows tour, they really upped like the, their, their keyboard tech had to do like 20 times more work because they used <laughs> all like they, there's a lot of sampling in the keyboard stuff that Getty was doing, too. And they sure. had to get all of these samplers and they toured with like, I mean, they had like 10 samplers on stage, you know, were backstage midied into the remote keyboards that Getty was playing. And this was when you had to insert a floppy disc, like a big, what, five and a half inch floppy Something, disc yeah. for like one sound and <laughs> insert another one into the other sampler and then a third one into the other. And this is all, you know, basically, you know, like my my iPhone can do like yeah, the same exactly. thing now. And you it's know, in it's, the dark it's extremely yeah. loud. You're sweaty. Right. Or, right. I mean, that's, yeah. those, that's I, a skilled crew. Absolutely. Well, you know, d- just as a little side note, I've I've heard um, 
Rush were extremely good to their road crew. They had a lot of people on their crew that had been with them nearly the entire career of the band. In yeah. fact, the keyboard tech, um, uh, Tony uh, Gerardios, Gerardios, something like that. His nickname is Jack Secret. Rush fans know who this guy is. He started working with them in 76 or 77, and he was with them on every tour until yeah. the last tour in 2015. Awesome. Um, they had other guys that were with them that long. And I had heard that they paid their crew very well. I don't know if they kept them on retainer when they weren't working, but they may have. I'm not sure. But, mm. you know, you don't have that kind of longevity with with crew members unless you treat them really well. They Those guys, you know, they tend to kind of float around and go wherever the money is and wherever they can find work. And, you know, those guys consistently went back to Rush. And and that says a lot about how they treated people and, and who they were, I think, as, as yeah, people. Yeah, for sure. And so, Neil um, had a very long term. What was Neil's, uh, t- wrote his tech name? Uh, Lauren? Well, his first tech was Larry Allen, who worked okay. from uh, with him from about 76 or 77 until um, 97. Um, and then... Um, they had their hiatus, uh, and then um, when they reconvened around 2000, 2001 to record the Vapor Trails album, um, Lauren Wheaton became yep. Neil's drum tech. And um, I've met Lauren. He's a really cool guy and um, loves to talk gear, loves to talk about Neil's drums. And and um, uh, he was a, you know amazing drum tech. And, and Larry Allen, actually, it's interesting because Larry was not a drum tech. He was just, I think, a friend of Neil's. And like Neil was like, hey, you, you want to come on the road with us? And I think that what I've heard, he didn't really know anything about drums and kind of had to learn on the job and kind of came up with some kind of different ways of doing things, I guess. Lauren talked about that when Lauren joined. If you see interviews with Lauren, he would, he would say like, yeah, you know, I kind of had to update a lot of things because they were used to doing things a certain way, the way Larry did them. And, you know, I, I had more experience as a drum tech working, you know, he'd worked for Steve Smith and yeah. I think maybe Billy Cobham. And, you know, so he had a lot of experience as a drum tech and was able to kind of get things a, a little more up to date, I guess. Yeah, but we'll I mean, get that, to that later. There, there You can see Lauren's yeah. influence in some ways. Um, yeah, that situation of like kind of just come with come on the road with me would be, you know, doable with like, just a normal rock drummer, but not the most technically difficult drum set to put together yeah, in human right. history. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Neil relied on Larry a lot because if Neil was interested in something, he would kind of send Larry off to find out info about it. Like if Neil was interested, he's written about this in interviews and articles and stuff. And he said like, oh, I was interested in finding out about sampling. So I, I asked Larry to find out what the best samplers were, you know, so he would kind of charge Larry with with um doing the nuts and bolts research for him and figure out what would work best for them uh which is um yeah i think neil was kind of a little more hands-off um yeah. as far as actually picking the gear and stuff and between larry allen and neil graham at the percussion center they would kind of come up with solutions for the things that neil wanted to do speaking of which another interesting um little electronic note um for the power windows tour neil found that because they were incorporating more and more sampling, he needed a some sort of pad for the front kit. He needed to be able to trigger some more stuff from the kit in front. And uh, Larry and I think somebody from Simmons, um, I think it was like the, the Simmons guy in Canada or something, they developed basically a miniature Simmons pad 
that mounted on this sort of shock mount between Neil's 12-inch Tom and 13-inch Tom. And they named the trigger, they named it Sydney, which is kind of funny because it's <laughs> sort of a variation on the word Simmons, the name yeah. Simmons. So the yeah. Sydney trigger was this really small, it's probably about like, you know, about I don't know, three inches, um, but shaped like a Simmons pad. And it went, you know, right between the toms and he would just kind of use it to trigger little samples and little little events that he needed to trigger that he couldn't get to the back kit to trigger or something like that. You know, there are certain little sounds that you see, like if you watch videos from that time, you'll see him like go over and hit. And he used that trigger actually all the way into the 2000s and eventually replaced it with a Dawes pad, D-A-U-Z. Oh, I've seen those. More modern version, basically the same idea, but a small pad that you could kind of fit anywhere. You can, Um, at first glance, you can miss, as I'm looking over at these pictures, you can very easily miss a lot. Like I'm looking right, I was looking at that picture at the yeah. pinstripe heads, and I didn't even see Sydney there. Yeah, yeah. It, it's I, I'm trying to remember everything too. Like I said, I have notes, but I'm trying oh, to just like no oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm sure I'm going to miss something. And I apologize to the to the Neil nerds that are like, <laughs> oh, but you didn't mention the thing. You know, sorry. I, I I'm trying to remember all of this and it's doing my good. best, but yeah. Um, and it's also, you know, I'm really interested in the the sampling he was doing. I'm really interested in like the clap trap and the left hand or the left foot triggering and things like that. I may spend more time on that stuff than other people would. Maybe if somebody else was doing this, they would spend more time on, you know, I don't know, the ride symbol or something like that yeah. or, you know. So I think it's interesting. Um, I think it's very cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think so, too. So um, the next step is a big one. This is where we get a completely different kit, a different drum brand, and an even further sort of step up in the sampling and electronics technology. Um, And this involves the change to Ludwig drums. And Mm -hmm. Neil was very typically meticulous about changing. And he talked about not wanting to take anything for granted in his equipment and kind of reevaluating you know, not just saying, oh, I just use the same drums and I just, you know, but like not like sort of thinking like, okay, why do I use these drums? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? Does this still make sense? And he decided that he, it was time for a new kit. He'd use the red, the candy apple red Tama kit. It had been repainted and been through three big tours and, you know, recorded three albums. He knew it was time for a new kit, but he didn't want to just get another kit just the same like it. So he wanted to make sure he was using the best possible drums for him. And what was interesting about this is I assumed, so he basically what he did was he went to the percussion center of Fort Wayne and had something like five or six identical kits all set up with the same heads and the same tuning and played all of them in the same room and compared them. And Mm. I always assumed that this happened well after so the the power windows tour ended i think around may late may of 86 um hold your fire the next record comes out in september of 87 so they were presumably spend much of 87 writing and recording that i figured that this switch and this you know this stuff happened like after the power windows tour but actually i in doing research for this podcast i discovered that it actually happened um uh, I don't know if I have the date here, but it actually happened during the Power Windows tour. They had a bit of time off. So May of 86. Yeah. In the middle of sort of the end of the Power Windows tour, they had a few days off. And this is actually when Neil did this 
test hmm. in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So apparently all of these kits were a 12, 13, and a 16. And I don't know if he had a 22-inch bass drum or a 24. I mean, he was using 14 by 24-inch bass drums at the time. So I assume that was what he used. But it wasn't a full like 6, 8, 10, 12, yeah. 12, 13, 15. You know, it wasn't the whole five thing. It was a five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a five-piece kit, basically, you know, or 12, 13, 15, 12, 13, 16, 24, I guess, and a Just snare. Just to get the feel of, of the yeah, drums. Yeah, yeah, like those are the sizes where he's going to know, he's going to know, he's going to be able to make a decision based yeah. on those sizes. He doesn't need the whole thing. So he had a set of Tama Art Stars, a set of Premier Resonators, a <laughs> set of Yamaha Tour Series drums, Ludwig Super Classics, a set of sonars. Now, he doesn't specify which line. Now, at that time, I'm talking May 86, it could have been the sonar light was very big, which was kind of a rel- relatively for sonar, thinner birch shell. They were making, um, I think they're still making signatures, which was like 12 ply beach. Um, and I don't know what else. I, maybe they were making phonics. So anyway, there's a sonar kit in the mix. And also a set of Tempest drums, which are fiberglass drums made in Canada. So all of those kits in identical sizes. He also says that he would have included a Gretsch kit. And I'm, I'm going to quote him exactly. He says, although I would, ha- I would certainly have included Gretsch in this category, I already have a small Gretsch practice kit at home. So I know they probably sound a bit warmer than I was looking for. Plus... The company proved surprisingly uncooperative in regard to this test. I just think that's the more I read that, the more I like I've been reading this article. I was quoting from an article in, um, let me see, April, uh, April or no, May 87, Modern Drummer, um, where he talks about this whole process of picking the new kit. And I remember reading that at the time and thinking, oh, okay. But the deeper I go into like, being a Gretsch nerd and into Gretsch history, and I've owned numerous Gretsch kits. I just love that Gretsch were like, apparently, you know, Neil or Neil Peart or Neil Graham, more likely at the percussion center, called up all these companies and said, Neil wants to test drums. Could you send us identical kits to the store? Hmm. And apparently Gretsch, <laughs> all these <laughs> no. companies were like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's get Neil. Let's uh, we maybe Neil will yeah. pick our drums. And, and apparently Gretsch are like, ah. Nah, no, we're not. We're not going to do that. <laughs> Maybe it's because like we now have hindsight, but I can't really. See, I love Gretsch, too, but I can't really see him playing a giant mega Gretsch kit for some reason. Yeah, but you know what? Nobody could see him playing a giant mega Ludwig kit at that. That's time. true. That's I mean, true. that was and, I remember at the time that was like, whoa, Ludwig. Oh, that's a left turn. That's something that's out of nowhere. That's that. Yeah. I, I didn't expect that as a drum nerd in 1987. I was really like, wow, that's. Yeah. I well, mean, I thought a Ludwig is like, you know, uh, Buddy Rich used Ludwig yeah. and, and you know, um, I wasn't really into Ringo yet, but, you know, Ginger Baker and Bonham. It's also neat, though, that he did play Tempest or try them. Yeah. Milestone yeah. becoming Tempest. And then right. um, now um, Ron Danette has it. But pretty cool mm-hmm. just with the whole Canadian uh, Absolutely, vibe of yeah. things. It's very neat. Yeah, he mentioned, you know, I uh, let me see, the best the best drums from six countries and three continents. That's kind of cool. Um, wow. I actually should, I want to talk about his Gretsch kit. It was, it was mentioned in that quote that he had a, uh, a Gretsch practice kit at home. 
And yeah. I was thinking maybe at the end we talk about some of the other kids, but I'll mention it here. Um, at some point around 84 or 85, Neil, he talked about this in one of his books. He said he was walking down the street in downtown Toronto. He passed a drum store and in the window was this Gretsch kit, um, a 12, 14, 20, basically like a, a jazz kit in Tony Williams, yellow lacquer. Hmm. And he said like, you know, he, he knew that like as a, as a 12 year old kid, he just would have loved that drum set. So he went right in and bought it just for fun because like he's, I think he says in the book, like I bought it for the, the part of me that's still 12 years old. That's awesome. And that became his practice kit at home for years. And if you read his book, Ghost Rider, um, which is the, bo- the book that he wrote about his personal tragedies that he went through in the 90s. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, fans know what, what I'm talking about. But just briefly, he is horrible. His, his um, daughter died in a, in a car accident and then maybe less than a year after his wife died of cancer. It's like it just Incredible. immeasurable horrible tragedies that he that he went through and the book that he wrote ghost rider is about sort of his processing and coming back from that and and the yellow kit actually figures prominently into that because that was the first kit he didn't play for a number of years he had hmm. no interest in playing and then at some point the spark hit and that was the kit that he, he talks about taking that kit to a studio, the yellow Gretsch kit and playing it. And that was sort of the kit that he played that helped sort of bring him back into, you know, the world of wanting to play drums again. Unbelievable. Um, so that kit was significant to him in, in different ways. And and um, I love also, I mean, for me being a jazz nerd, the fact that he had a Tony Williams yellow Gretsch kit. I mean, yeah. that's cool. The man you know? with the biggest drum set has also a tiny little jazz mm-hmm. kit, you know? Yeah. In the same color as Tony Williams. Yeah. Elvin Jones had a, uh, had a, a yellow Gretsch kit. Um, my, my, uh, one of my favorite drummers and a colleague of mine at, at Juilliard, Billy Drummond has a yellow Gretsch kit. Um, Will Calhoun plays a yellow Gretsch kit now. True. There's a whole history of people that use that color. I just yeah. think it's cool that Neil had one. Yeah. Anyway, that is a total aside. Let's Love talk it. again about this. This So he had this, um, at the end of the Power Windows tour, he goes in and tries all these different kits. And he basically found that the Ludwigs gave him the sound that he wanted and that they had a little bit more snap and clarity and sort of punchiness and articulation that he didn't get from the other drums. And the Ludwig Super Classics were, um, at the time, in 86, I think a new thing for Ludwig. They had been making, since the mid-70s, um, a, a six-ply shell, six plies of maple and poplar um, with no reinforcement rings. So the classic 50s, 60s Ludwig shell is a three-ply shell with reinforcement rings. Um, but they dropped that in the mid-70s, I think around 76 Hmm. Went to a straight shell, six plies, but very thick, very, very, very thick. So each ply individually is very thick. And in the mid 80s, they came out with what they called the Super Classic, which was a four ply version. The same shell, same ply layup, like, you know, maple and poplar, no rings, but a thinner version. And that was what he liked. He was into resonance, he was into thinner shells. Now, that having been said, these are still by modern standards actually still pretty thick shells yeah and i think gretsch really were the only company at the time maybe making what we would consider in modern terms a a genuinely thin shell 
Mm. Um, you know, DW would would make very thin shells later, but you know, at the time this was kind of thin shell technology. So he switched to Ludwig. Now, I want to mention a funny thing about this kit. There are a couple of funny things about this kit. Initially, he ordered the exact normal setup with the concert toms, 6, 8, 10, and 12 concert toms. But shortly after, I think when they started writing music for what became the Hold Your Fire record, um, I don't know why, but he he ended up, I guess he just, again, was sort of reevaluating and thinking like, well, maybe I want something different. And he replaced the 6, 8, 10, and 12 concert toms with 6, 8, and 10 double-headed toms. And what Ludwig made in those days, they their smaller toms, they actually made, they were very long. They were like power toms. So, um, you know, a 6, 8, and 10 deep toms. Instead of, I mentioned in the earlier episode that he had 6, 8, 10, 12 concert toms, and they were tuned a certain way. And then he had another 12 as his first double-headed tom. The double-headed 12 is actually tuned previous to this kit much higher than the single-headed 12. So he'd kind of like have two different, you know. Oh, interesting. He he thought of them kind of as two different sets of toms. Um, He would integrate them sometimes, but um, once he switched to double-headed toms for the smaller drums, it didn't make sense to have two 12, so he just jettisoned one. And I think he just was really into the sound of the Ludwigs and just wanted everything to sound sort of consistent, like one voice. Um, Now, there's another thing about this kit. Again, these are minute details, but I'm going to go deep into this. Um, And this is where I'm going to... I I really didn't want to speculate on anything. I didn't want to say, well, I think that this is this, because I wanted to really just talk to you about things that I know are factually true or can be proven. They were either things that he specifically talked about. Like, for example, there's an article in Rhythm Magazine, the British drum magazine in 1985, around the time Power Windows came out, where he describes his his practice kit at home, the Gretsch kit. And he says specifically, it's a 12, a 14, and a 20. So I know those are the sizes. You know, Mm -hmm. that's not speculation that it was those sizes. But when I look at pictures of the Ludwig kit from 87 on. So I have a pretty good, one of my, one of my talents, one of my like bar tricks is I'm pretty good with certain brands of being able to visually identify sizes, drum sizes. I'm good at Ludwig and I'm good at Gretsch. Um, Those two companies, like I can just look at a kit and because of the, the spacing of the lugs and the size of the lugs in relation to the size of the shell, I can tell you, like, for example, on a Ludwig kit, a 12, an 8 by 12 inch tom looks completely different than a 9 by 13 and a 10 by 14. They all look really, really different. Even if, like, I don't see the three of them together, I can tell you, oh, that's a 9 by 13 because of the way the lugs are spaced and things like that. It's just... It's just you have something to test I'm, that at some point on, on a video sure, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will. Um, I'll put money on my. Uh, Good. I, I'm, okay. I'm that confident about about my ability <laughs> to do this, and I'm you know with floor toms, a Ludwig sixteen by sixteen has a look, and it doesn't look like a Ludwig sixteen by eighteen. Now, all of his previous kits, except for Chromie from the seventy seven kit on, he's using sixteen by eighteen as his floor tom. Now, when he did this test, 
of the drums, he specifies that the toms were 8x12, 9x13, and a 16x16. He says in, in this article in Modern Drummer that it was 16x16 floor tom. And I think that he really liked that size and decided when he ordered this kit to get a 16x16 instead of his regular 16x18 for his mm. single floor tom. And I cannot prove that, but that's this is one time where I'm going to say, like, I, this is speculation, but I am quite sure. And it's because visually, I, I'm very confident I can identify a Ludwig 16 by 16 because of the spacing of the lugs. And also, sound-wise, when you listen to Hold Your Fire, there's not a huge pitch difference between, so he's got 12, 13, 15, and then the floor tom in question. Yeah. The, 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 the floor tom on Hold Your Fire sounds higher pitch than the floor tom on any previous Rush album. It's a deeper, lower pitched and kind of indistinct floor tom pitch on, early, on, on earlier recordings with the two Tama kits. And live recordings too, when you hear like his drum solo, when he's playing on the 16-inch floor tom before, you know, when he's doing the cowbell thing, like on show of hands, it's different, man. It's a different sounding drum. It's a different pitch and a different articulation than you hear on earlier recordings. So I am almost positive that he had a 16 by 16 with his Ludwig kit and not I a trust 16 your by 18. Well, thank you. you. Yes. I know other people would, would disagree and that's cool. But um, let's put it in the comments section, you know, and yeah, then, yeah. then we can debate there. <laughs> so, that's Did the we kit. say the color? Can we? Yeah, I, yeah. I was just going to get to that. So yeah. this kit had a really kind of wacky color. It was, it was white basically. It's like a white base with apparently a very little hint of pink, and and then some sparkles. There's like a little subtle sparkle to the kit, yeah. and there are not a lot of photos where you can really tell. So there's an odd photo um, that that. Um, he did a photo shoot when he first got the kit and he still has the concert toms on the left. And that mm -hmm. photo shoot was used for a Ludwig ad that ran like 87, 88, 89. And when Ludwig ran that ad, for whatever reason, they did a thing that was very popular in the 80s where they took a black and white version of the photo and then they colorized it. And they kind of colorized it with these sort of pastel colors that were very sort of trendy and very West Coasty in the 80s. If you look at any 80s material coming from like Los Angeles in like 1987, it's very sort of pink and yellow pastel sort of colors and sure. everything sort of wispy. And so they did that. They gave it that kind of color treatment. But when they did that, they colored the drums very pink. So a lot of people see those photos and think like, oh, this kit was pink. And it wasn't. It really was white, but it had like this hint of pink. And under certain lights, it would look pink. But really, when you see it in like the, the, the live video, a show of hands that came out from the Hold Your Fire tour, when like white lights are on it, it's just white. It's mostly a white kit with like this just very subtle hint of pink, but you don't really see it. It's basically a white kit. Yeah. Well, um, white has that characteristic of uh, obviously like the wall behind me right now. That's a white mm, wall. There's a light uh, on it. It looks it green. It takes whatever like, color it. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Right. How it works. <laughs> yeah. And, and like a black kit won't really take any color. Like it'll no. kind of always look black, you know, yeah. for the most part. And that kit too, I think white drums look really great with brass plated or gold plated totally. hardware. Um, Oh, you know, one thing I forgot to mention about the previous Tama kit 
it was on the uh, Graysoner Pressure Tour that he started modifying all of his stands. So at that point, he was using all Tama stands for the most part. And he, he started modifying them where he took the tripod base off of them and had the pipes basically installed directly onto the, the riser, the, the sort of boards that are on the top of the riser. Um, it makes the whole kit look very streamlined because if you look at the photos, I think I sent you some of the kit, the first, like 1983, the, when he first started using the, the, the 360 kit, Yep. at Radio City, there's just a, a, a huge sort of like um, forest of, sure. of tripod double brace stands. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's just like a thousand of them there. And and it's starting to look a little bit busy. And I think when he got rid of the bases and started, you know, having them sort of screw right into the riser, it just made everything look cleaner and, and, and totally. very cool, actually. It is cool. Um, so that was Altama hardware. When he switched to the Ludwig drums, he actually switched to a lot of Premier hardware, interestingly. Hmm. A lot of those stands are Premier stands, and the hi-hat stand that he switched to was a Premier hi-hat stand. And interestingly, so Ludwig at that time used, they were still using their classic T-rods on the bass drum, uh, the same sort of things you know that they used in the 50s and 60s yeah. and 70s. Uh, same T-rods that Ringo had on his kit and John Bonham had on his kit. Um, for whatever reason, Neil took those off and was actually using um, Premier T-rods, which were kind of different. Um, but you actually look closely, you can see Premier T-rods on the Ludwig bass drum. Interesting. Maybe so he picked up some Premier like things he liked on his taste test when he did the five kits. And he... Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. He also talked about liking... Um, he did talk about playing a Pearl kit, but um, he said that he liked the Pearl free-floating snare drum a lot. The uh, the, the free-floating snare with the interchangeable shells. He said that was a cool... I don't know whether he ever used one or bought one, but he um, um, he got more into like different snare drums a little bit later, but but he did um, he did mention that drum as being yeah. one that he thought was cool. So did he there was, switch uh, the Slingerland? Is the is his original like favorite snare out of the still picture? There. Still there, painted white. Yeah, painted white now. Cool. Yeah, that snare remains in the lineup until he switches to DW. Ah, that's that's, that's right. This, I remember you saying that. That's yeah, cool. yeah. So um, the other thing that uh, gets massively upgraded at this point is the electronic setup. Um, so he gets deeper into sampling. Um, he, for the first time, gets a proper sampler. He gets an Akai um, S900, which was a proper, I think it was still 12-bit. It wasn't even a 16-bit, but it was mm. a, a good quality sampler, kind of a studio quality sampler. And he got a couple of those, and those stored sounds on 3.5 floppies, mm. um, which were more reliable than the you know, the EPROMs probably. And he could have a lot more sounds. And he started just going crazy sampling all kinds of, again, like African and Indian and uh, uh, Asian drums, um, temple blocks. He also got into sampling, you know, like noise sounds, like, you know, industrial sort of like hitting pipes and hitting sheets of metal and all kinds of cool. stuff like that. Uh, classical percussion. And this ties into, so... Through all of this, he's using, previous to this point, a glockenspiel on his left, um, above the timbales, below the concert toms. So he discovers at this point the um, the company Cat, K-A-T, that make um, the mallet cat, which is yes. basically an electronic 
Mario Dacutis has been on the show and was the inventor of it. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, I think Neil helped put those guys on the map because um, I I mean, I'd never heard of one, I don't think, until Neil started playing one. But it's basically a two octave. Well, Neil's was two octaves, basically an electronic marimba that it didn't generate its own sounds. It was just a MIDI controller. um, And he would you know, use the, uh, the sampler to, you know, as a sound generator. So he had all kinds of marimba sounds, xylophone sounds, all sorts of things sampled, um, that he would, that he would play. Also all of, at this point he dropped most of his tuned percussion. He kept like one set of wind chimes, but he sampled his glockenspiel. He sampled tubular chimes. He sampled, um, uh, the bell tree, the crotals, all of the stuff got sampled and he he jettisoned all of those percussion instruments because um, they were a lot of extra stuff to carry around. They were very hard to mic. I mean, imagine trying to mic orchestral percussion instruments <laughs> yeah. in an arena in a in a heavy rock show. That's yeah. not going to be easy. No. Um, so this was like, you know, a very easy way to get those things, you know, heard properly. So he replaced all of that stuff with the samples on the mallet cat. And he also changed a few things in the the electronic drum department. He added two more Simmons pads, kind of like basically. So what he did was he actually eliminated one of those three Chinese symbols on mm. his right. So he got rid of the 20 inch Zildjian swish. Um, he really didn't use it that much. So I don't think he really missed it. And in its place, under the Wuhan China and the Pang, he put these two pads. And he could reach them either from the main kit, because they're to his right, just to the right of his ride symbol. Or when he's on the back kit, they're over kind of to his left now. So he could reach them on either side um, of the kit. So he has more electronic sounds to play with, basically, at this point. More opportunities to trigger samples. Um and then he replaces the clap trap. He he samples that sound, all of the sounds that he needed that the clap trap was was producing. He sampled, and he got initially a. Um, there was a company called Shark that made a trigger pedal, basically like a like a, a you know kind of looks like a modern version of a bass drum pedal. Kind of looks like one of those. Remember the Axis bass drum pedal? Mm-hmm. It sort yes. of looks like one of those. It, yeah. but, but with no beater, it's just a pedal that does this. And triggers electronic sounds again. Another MIDI controller. So cool. Um, uh, and then, oh, actually, as a MIDI controller, so the pads at this point, he ditches the Simmons units and samples whatever he needs from the Simmons units, and then he starts using just the samplers, the Kai S900s as a sound source, and a Yamaha. I believe it was the PMC10 was the. Um, it's just a triggered MIDI interface. So basically, the pads go into the Yamaha, Yamaha trigger to MIDI interface. And that assigns, you know, and you MIDI the sampler into that. So all of the sampler sounds get assigned via the Yamaha device into whatever pad you want them to go. So that's, that's actually, for the time, a very modern, up-to-date sampler, like, you know, electronic drum setup. Yeah, it makes um, sense to streamline things and put things in. And, and it's yeah. like it's like he's shedding his skin of the previous... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, huge setup. So, so it, it makes perfect it, sense. It did yeah. get a little more streamlined. I think having the tune percussion off of the kit made, you know, certainly sound wise, it made things a little easier for everyone. Um, yeah, and uh, um, and and you hear the stuff all over. Hold your fire. I I'd say probably 
every song on Hold Your Fire, I have to think about it, but I think every song incorporates sampled percussion sounds of one one degree or another. And there's a fair amount of mallet cat stuff. Like there's some spots where he plays some marimba things. And, and you know, he's just really into this stuff and he wants yeah. to use it and he makes it all work really musically into these tunes. Yeah. And also you really hear a change in the drum sound on, on Hold Your Fire. The Ludwigs have, um, it's even more towards that bright, crispy, tonality like a lot of articulation and a lot of tone like a really distinct each tom has a very distinct musical note to it and you really hear that all over this record mm. um and i think he really did achieve what he wanted also i should say that the ludwig kit also had the vibrofibing treatment he had the, oh, neat. the the layer of fiberglass put on the inside you know i think he achieved what he was looking for he was just looking for crisper cleaner sort of sounds and 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 it goes with the music too alex lifeson was using um guitars by a company called signature which made guitars uh with active pickups which is a very sort of punchy sound a very direct sort of guitar sound this sort of crisp and jangly guitar sound Mm. and i think you know getty lee was getting more into using a lot of rich keyboard sounds and i think Neil and Alex both needed to kind of up their sound to get more crispness to sort of cut through yeah. the big keyboard washes. And I think they yeah. really, they, they accomplished that on this record. They, they, they did get through that stuff. You know, they project through the keyboards and yeah, um, he's very methodical and knows what he's looking for mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. takes his time and sets it up. Right. And yeah. 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 So yeah. a little head change too. Neil started using um, mostly Remo, clear emperors on the tops of the toms and clear diplomats on the bottoms of the toms. So these are all the the double-headed toms. Um, But he also sometimes you see some photos and footage of him where he's got an Evans clear head on the, on the tops. And I don't know whether that would have been the Evans Uno 58 at the time, or if it was another Evans, but it was like a a thinner Evans head than he was using before. Gotcha. Um, I think he was again trying to go for more of a an open sound, and was not using as quite as thick heads. I mean, an emperor is still a thick head, but yeah. Um, <laughs> now, did he paint it black? Was the kit itself? Is this a different Ludwig kit that I'm looking uh, at? The next that, that kit, he- yeah, for Presto, yeah. Okay, so that is actually the exact same kit. But it's not black. It's actually a very, very dark purple. Oh, I see. It's like okay. a plum finish. Gotcha. Also looks really amazing with the uh, brass plated hardware. I think yeah. this is a really beautiful look for this kit. But it is actually the exact same kit. And the only thing really that changed with this kit was um, he got, he ditched the Simmons pads and started using um, D-drum pads. And I think he just said it was because um, they felt a little better to play. Um, And maybe the Simmons look by that point, this is like 1990. Maybe the Simmons look, the hexagonal pads were maybe seemed a little dated at the time. I'm not really sure. 80s, you think they're so iconic that you're sort of stuck in that um, era. But again, now they're kind of cool. What's old is new when you see them nowadays. But yeah, um, yeah, God, it must. And it looks like a company Paintworks did it from your looking at your yes. picture. Yeah. It's, so, so yeah, all of the finishes up through Presto were done at the percussion center of Fort Wayne. Um, although Bob Milhart told me that um, he was pretty sure that Tama did. So when he did the when he had the Candy Apple Red kit, he actually had that refinished a few times and that initially 
percussion center Fort Wayne did that finish, but then at a later date, actually Tama did it. He would send it back to the Tama factory. Um, and, um, uh, but yeah. And then I guess the white finish was done at the percussion center, but then Paintworks, which was another company, I guess that did drum finishes, they ended up doing the Presto kit and they did, they did uh, the other, you know, Ludwig kits up until we switched to, uh, to DW at that point, everything was done in house at DW, but yeah. So the Presto kit is basically the same. The only big equipment change we get for the Presto album is that Neil started experimenting with a lot of different snare drums. Um, now, he never really talked about this. I assume he was recording with the, with the Slingerland Old Faithful snare on you know these records we're talking about, but I actually don't know because he didn't really talk about it. He talked about using the, the you know, loving the Slingerland snare and using it live, and we see it in the photos from the permanent waves album sessions and moving pictures um and and signals but maybe he was using different snares already but he confirmed in a modern drummer interview that he got a uh there was a company called solid that made solid shell snare drums and i believe this company actually had something to do with johnny craviato it may have been his company before he started working with dw and then ultimately started craviato drums yeah, so he had a snare, I believe it was 4 by 14 it was a piccolo snare, made of a wood called Coco Bolo, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, it's a very, very hard, um, an African hardwood that's very, very dense, and he had this, this piccolo snare that he said he used on much of the Presto album, and you hear it, you listen to Presto, I mean, immediately this album has a completely different snare drum vibe than anything you've heard from Neil before. Um, much higher pitched, much sort of snappier and um, very, very articulate. And it's a really interesting snare sound. And it's on much of the record. He, in a modern drummer interview at the time, he said that he also had a Camco snare that he used a bit on that record. Now, it was actually a Tama Camco Um Without going too deep in the history, Tama owned the Camco name and briefly resurrected the Camco brand in the late 70s. And I didn't know they made dry. We all know about the pedal or not right. we all know, but most people know about the pedal and DW got the hardware and the, the tooling or whatever. But I didn't know they were they had resurrected the, uh, the, the snare drum. Line, yeah. Maybe maybe that came up in the Camco episode with Joe mm-hmm. Luoma, but I. Yeah, Camco were more famous for, you know, the drums they made in the 50s and 60s, yeah, which were amazing drums. Yeah. Um, and I guess yep. into the 70s, too. But but yeah, they, they kind of, there's a whole weird history with Tama and DW and yes. Camco. But but yeah, Tama did resurrect briefly the Camco line. And actually, to get back to our jazz heroes, Elvin Jones was their primary endorser. He, was, sure. he had a Camco kit in the late 70s. Yeah. And when that kind of faded away... Um, Elvin became a Tama endorser after that and used superstars right. and then grand stars. But um, I guess Tama had given Neil a Camco snare drum. And he mentioned in this interview that, you know, I've had this drum for a while and suddenly it sounded great to me and I used it on a few tracks on Presto. So I don't know what tracks he used which drum on. I mean, I hear, you know, it's it's all this sort of high-pitched, really bright snare yeah. Um, so and with EQ be, and mixing, it could be this snare, but tell, it's EQ'd yeah. like this. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. So that's the big equipment change, I th- I would say. Um, and he's still utilizing, you know, 
samples and things like that, but not maybe not quite as much as he did on Hold Your Fire. He, he kind of gradually starts using samples and things a little less. Hold Your Fire is kind of like the the pinnacle of Neil's electronic use, I think. That's probably the record with the most electronic drums mm. action happening on it. Cool. Um, so um, the next chapter is kind of interesting. It still involves the Presto kit, but... Um, so around, so Presto Tour ends in the summer of 1990, and the next thing that we see Neil doing while they're actually preparing for the Roll the Bones album is Neil appears at one of the earlier Buddy Rich Memorial Scholarship concerts, and this happens. I think it was in this is spring or early summer of 1991. And Neil traveled to New York and played a few tunes with the Buddy Rich Big Band, and this was documented on video and DCI put out the video. Yeah. So Neil is using a variation of his Presto purple Ludwig kit. And what's funny about this is I remember hearing about this concert. I remember it was advertised in Modern Drummer and I didn't go to the concert. I was, you know, in high school in Pittsburgh at the time, but I remember talking to my drummer friends and we were speculating, like, what is Neil going to do? And I remember one of my friends saying, oh, I bet he's going to go up there and play big band versions of a bunch of Rush tunes. And I remember being really surprised when I saw that he was actually playing um, jazz, playing Buddy Rich arrangements. Yeah, I think and, he plays it really and, well. Um, yeah, so so what was really cool to me, too, was wondering, okay, what kind of kit is he going to use? Is he going to bring the whole kit? Is he going to... What's he going to do? And he actually kind of went to a Buddy Rich-ish kit or a jazz-ish kit where he basically did a four-piece version of his regular kit. Um, same basic cymbal setup. He got rid of one of the 16-inch crashes. And on his left, he has his 20-inch crash. Yeah, he has three crashes, Splash, the Cowbells, the Ride, and one China, the, the, the 20-inch uh, Wuhan. And but otherwise it's it's just a four piece kit. And this is again, I have to mention 16 inch floor tom. I guarantee you that's a 16 inch floor tom. That is not an 18 inch floor tom. 13, 16. Now, oh, and the slingerland snare. The mm. bass drum, however, that is not the 14 by 24 inch bass drum that is the normal bass drum from the Hold Your Fire slash Presto Ludwig kit. That I have only recently discovered is actually a 22 inch bass drum. Um, and I, I don't know why I didn't realize this earlier, but the Tom bracket, the, the, the bass drum bracket on the top of the bass drum that holds the post for the mm-hmm. rack Tom is a completely different unit than what's on the Presto kit. So the Presto kit on the right bass drum has the Tom mount is a Tama, but it's a, it's sort of a superstar era bracket on the bass drum. On the Buddy Rich concert, he's got a much larger, more modern Tama bracket. And I also, again, I'm pretty good at identifying drum sizes, and it looks like a 14 by 24 to me. It doesn't look like a 20, uh, sorry, 14 by 22. Doesn't yeah. look like a 24. Um, he still wanted to play his double bass language on this concert. So for the first time, he uses a double pedal. And interestingly, he picked for whatever reason a Yamaha double hmm. pedal. Interesting. Uh, it's a it, it's it's a, a state of the art Yamaha at the time with a double chain drive, 
And um, I used to have this, I actually still have it, um, the single pedal version of that pedal. And it's a really great feeling pedal. It still is. And mine is like 30 years old, at least at this point. It still plays great. Mm-hmm. Um, so Neil had the double pedal version of this. And around the same time, he's pl- he plays that concert. And around the same time, he's working on the Roll the Bones album. And I don't know if he was inspired by the little kit that he played or if it was, again, I, I mean, he talks about in interviews at the time, the same process of reevaluating, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing? What if we change things up? What if we swap things around? And around the time of writing Roll the Bones, he completely changes the kit up and he gets rid of one of the bass drums and he uses a single bass drum with a double pedal. And with the tom-toms, he basically takes the 16-inch floor tom from his right in the normal position and puts it on the left, to the left of the hi-hat, and then puts all of the toms one position down. So he used to have 12, 13, 15, and a 16-inch floor tom, or an 18. Yep. Right? 12, 13, 15 floor tom. So now the floor tom's on the left, so that same group of four is now 10, 12, 13, 15. And he has his tech, Larry Allen, drill the 15-inch tom for floor tom brackets. And they they use that. This is still the plum kit. Now, yeah. now Roll the Bones was recorded on the plum Ludwig kit. Um, the, the kit that came for the tour, the Roll the Bones tour, is actually not the kit used on the recording. Gotcha. Um, the recording was done on the plum kit, also Ludwig, obviously. But all of the toms shift down a size. So now he's got six, eight, and then double-headed toms, 10, 12, 13, 15-inch floor tom, 16-inch floor tom on the left. And um, I believe, I'm not sure, I don't have verification, but he may have used the 24-inch bass drum for the recording, but I suspect he had this 22 floating around, which he used on the Buddy Rich concert. I think he maybe used a 22 on Roll the Bones, but I yeah. can't verify that. No, but that's a huge change going to the one bass drum. It's, it's in with the double pedal. Yeah. It seems like, and going, you know, the mallet cat, and he's not afraid to shrink things down. And No, he's not afraid to take chances. He's not yeah. afraid to like, I mean, people, you know, it was a big deal. I remember at the time it was a big deal. You know, think about it, going from a double bass kit to single bass drum with a with a double pedal was a really big deal because if you look at rock bands in the 70s and 80s nearly everybody was using double bass drums it was really a thing especially yeah. hard rock and and metal you know other than like I mean Nico McBrain always used single bass drum there are some exceptions yeah. but I mean you look at MTV in the 80s you see a rock band or a hair metal band it's double bass drums always Pretty much it's always, thing. right? Yeah, you it know, looked, it Bobby, looked awesome, but it changed. It looks great, yeah. Bobby Blotzer, Tommy Lee, Lars Ulrich, um, Blas Elias, uh, Rob Afuso, mm-hmm. uh, Mickey D. I can name all of these guys, yeah. <laughs> you know, that I used to see. Uh, Frankie Benali, um, double bass drum, all all around, you know. Fred yeah. Curry from Cinderella. Um, I mean, I could probably go on. Um did maybe it Neil a, help change the tide to, oh, now it's okay to do a single, pe- you know, bass drum? I Possibly, yeah. Also, grunge was coming in and drum sets were it, yes. changing. And I think to the left-hand floor, Tom, I can't find, I can't think of an interview where Neil says this specifically, but, you know, Dave Weckl hit the scene 
Dave Weckl started to really blow up around 85, 86. The first Chicory Electric Band record comes out in 1986. And Weckl used a floor tom on his left, just to the left of the hi-hat, as well as one or two on his right. And that was something that he got from his one of his teachers, Gary Chester, who was a famous studio drummer. Gary had this whole approach of this sort of ambidextrous approach where he wanted to have all of the stuff that was here, he also wanted to have here so that he could have a ride and a snare drum here, a ride and a snare drum here. He had a hi-hat on his left, but also a hi-hat on his right, a floor tom on his right, but also on his left so that he could just have a lot of possibilities. He didn't have to reach over if he wanted to play the floor tom. Yeah. You know, if he's playing on the hi-hat, he could, you know, he'd have it here. So sure. Weckl, Weckl did that and incorporated that extensively in his vocabulary in this time period. And there were other drummers that copied him. Um, Steve Smith did a left-hand floor tom thing around that time. And I suspect maybe Neil was inspired by that. Neil maybe saw a video of Dave Wackel or went to see Dave Wackel. We don't know, but um, yeah. I don't think it, it may have come out of nowhere, but I, I, I suspect maybe he saw that Wackel was doing this and thought, oh, I'll try this. Yeah. He wasn't intimidated and, by the new guy. He said, oh, let me try that. And Exactly. Yeah. Inspired yeah. by, I mean, that yes. was, you know, inspiration man i mean that's 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 what it's all about yeah and i'll tell you he came up with a whole bunch of really interesting patterns fills incorporating this left-hand floor tom the 16-inch floor tom on his left there's a tune called bravado on roll the bones that has some really really great patterns where he's utilizing you know doing doing stuff with the left-hand floor tom um, almost using it as like a ghost note leading into a snare drum backbeat, you know, almost oh, cool. like digga, 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 boom, bap, yeah. like that kind of language or fills where, in, you know, his left hand could go over to the floor tom and have offbeat 16th notes happening on this floor tom. Mm. It's just like all kinds of new colors and, and ideas and patterns that you couldn't really do any other way other than having this big drum mm. on your left. So for the tour, he gets a new kit. He gets this new Ludwig kit. Um, and the sizes are slightly different. The 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 smaller toms shrink. He goes uh, to basically like standard size. I mentioned the 6, 8, and 10 for the previous Ludwig kit were sort of like power toms. Now the 6, 8, and 10 are sort of standard size. I know the 10 was a 7 by 10. And this the 8 was probably – it was probably – Five by six and six by eight, seven by ten. I I think those were the sizes. I'm not a hundred percent actually, but they were standard yep. size small toms. He still got clear emperors on these toms. And I'll tell you something. I see over and over again on forums, on Facebook groups, talking about Neil. Over and over again, I hear so many drummers say the Ludwig sound is my favorite sound. That was the best sound Neil ever got. Hmm. And I think that the, the this particular Ludwig kit, the live kit on the Roll the Bones tour was the best sound. Personally, I think that's the best sound he ever got. That's my favorite uh, wow. Neil sound. And I mean, it's, it's yeah, it, it, there's something about the clarity that it was the perfect sort of combination of clarity, tonality, depth, low end sort of meat and weight. Um, just a really, really fantastic sounding kit. And it just really suited his touch. I think it was the perfect sort of marriage of the sound of the kit and his touch yeah. and sort of approach to hitting the drums. 
Well, and he got what I he just, wanted. He he tried things yeah, out and yeah. tested, and it it worked out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely. good to know, though, for people out there to listen to what to do their own taste test of Neil and see what they yeah. like. Yeah, yeah, know? totally. You know, listen yeah. to the li- listen to the to the studio recordings, but also listen to the live recordings. There are a lot of bootlegs and things you can hear on YouTube. Um, you know, you can get a sense of what those drums sounded like live. And, and for me, that's, I think that's probably my favorite. My favorite studio sound is, is probably on the next album counterparts, which is, I believe was recorded on the exact same kit. So Hmm. there was something special about that, that blue shadow kit. And that was another, actually, that was a sort of a custom finish. And I don't know whether Ludwig did that or Paintworks did that, but Ludwig later came out with a version of blue shadow but it looked pretty different than Neil's kit. Neil's blue shadow was a darker blue. Um, the the sort of catalog version of blue shadow doesn't quite look like Neil's did. I don't know yeah. what, what happened there. More of a custom job or something. Yeah, I think so. Maybe done by Paintworks again. I'm not actually sure. Yeah. Um, that kit again was was had the fiber fibing treatment. Um, and uh, but yeah, really the big change is that shift of the toms that the. the jettisoning of the the second bass drum and the shift of the toms and the left-hand floor tom. Um, cool. So uh, we moved to Counterparts. Um, Counterparts seems to have been recorded on that same kit. Um, the only thing that changes is uh, he started using, actually, there's more electronic drums, more sampling on Counterparts than there was on Roll the Bones. Uh, for whatever reason, he kind of got back into it a little bit and starts using, again, some more kind of like um you know uh african and asian drum sounds and and also some sort of like industrial like you know weird sounds metallic sounds and he also actually starts triggering with his left foot trigger he starts triggering a uh, tambourine sample he Mm. uses this on a number of songs on um on counterparts he uses it on uh um animate it's on um mm, i'm spacing a bit on what other tunes cut to the chase it's on a bunch you'll hear it on yeah, uh, you know and sure. it's usually his left foot um except for one tune called cold fire where on the verses he actually goes between riding on the hi-hat playing eighth notes on the hi-hat and then for part of the verse he plays eighth notes on this tambourine and i actually don't know whether in, in the studio if he was triggering that sound or what but when they when they come around to the tour for counterparts he actually has a rhythm tech tambourine mounted above his 10 inch tom so that he can ride on it to to make that section of the tune happen um now there was a different kit he got a new kit for the counterparts tour and this kit's very very similar to the uh roll the bones kit except it's a new finish it's a it's a finish that he refers to as black cherry and Mm. from for you know Every picture you see of it, it basically looks like a black kit. But there are some some photos of the kit that are recent. That kit now lives in the Canadian Museum of History, which is in Quebec. Cool. It and is Canadian he, history. I mean, for yes, real. that's true. Yeah. So yeah. he has on Andrew's page. There's a link to basically the manifest of all of the drums that were in the uh the counterparts tour kit and there's a photograph of each actually numerous photographs of each drum and each piece of hardware and in these studio photographs they took for the museum you can kind of see the hint of red that's in that black finish and these were like really great really well done paint jobs you know same thing with the pink kit you know where the the white kit with the hint of pink like they're kind of like 
they kind of look like one color, but when you get up close, you can see there's something else in there. And like a lot of really fancy cars have that sort of thing. Totally. Like, you know, I was going to say, it's it's very much like that. Where it's like a master painter is doing this. It's not. So, so Neil would refer yeah. to these as hot rod finishes. And I totally. think he was inspired by the type of finishes people would do, the custom paint jobs people would do in the 50s and 60s on hot rod cars. Yeah. And stuff like candy apple red. Um, and actually, uh, Fender guitars utilized a lot of you know so-called like hot rod finishes. Um, into uh, yeah, like they did a candy apple red and Lake Placid blue and these other sort of finishes that were associated with uh, with cars at the time. So I, I one thing I forgot to mention um, with the Presto kit, there is one other change with the Presto kit, and that is that um, he stops using the second Slingerland snare with the back kit. And he gets a Ludwig Piccolo snare. Hmm. Um, he doesn't really play the back kit all that much at this point. It's only on a couple of tunes live, but he uses, I, I'm not sure actually if it's a three by 13 or a three by 14, but I think it's a three by 13 Ludwig Piccolo snare, starting with the Presto tour. And he continues using that on the Roll of Bones tour and the Counterparts tour. Another thing that he does is he starts using on in the middle of the Roll of Bones tour, he adds another snare drum on his left to the left of the uh, the six inch tom, and that's a funny snare called the Remo um, uh, Legato snare. It's a th- it's basically like a piccolo snare, but what it sort of is is like it was it was a marching type snare. It was you know marching snares are usually deep. Yeah, it was basically a shallow version of a marching snare with a super tight thick head on it and i don't like a really kevlar know what, head or yeah kevlar head and i don't know really what the idea was behind it but it had this really wild sort of almost sounds like a pistol shot kind of a sound to it um cool. and he used that as sort of like a little effect snare and that's something that he continues later on with all the dw kits is he uses a sort of small secondary snare as like a little effect snare up to his left and that's kind of a thing that, that this remo legato snare kind of starts that trend um and yeah i guess um the counterparts kit the only other thing i'll say about that and again this is touching into this sort of speculation like i i I don't really want to say you know i don't want to speculate on stuff but there's some controversy over whether the presto that sorry the counterparts kit had a 22 inch bass drum or a 24 inch bass drum so the roll the bones kit we know out of 22 and that is likely what he recorded counterparts on. But um, there is sort of a kit manifest that was done for Modern Drummer. Um, there was an interview with him in Modern Drummer around the time counterparts came out. And they talk about the counterparts tour kit. And there's some interesting things about that kit. Um, according to that manifest, he went from, I mentioned the, the 10 inch Tom Tom being mm-hmm. a 7 by 10. Apparently on the counterparts kit, it's an eight by 10. And I would say visually that looks like it was actually true that for whatever reason, he ordered an eight by 10 counterparts kit, uh, eight by 10 Tom for the counterparts kit. The 12 by 15 inch floor Tom on the roll of bones kit, according to that manifest is now a 13 by 15 inch Tom Tom. And again, the few pictures of the counterparts kit from live shows and stuff. It, I think that's actually right. It looks different than the counterpart, uh, the, the Roll the Bones kit. It looks like Maybe a 13 he just by 15. Maybe wants to change it up or? Well, it's a heavier record. 
Oh, it's, I see. It's, they go back to kind of this heavier sound, thicker guitar sounds. They were kind of influenced by Nirvana and Pearl Jam, the heavier sound of grunge in Seattle, mm-hmm. Soundgarden, that music at the time. They kind of, it's a great album. I love this record. And the sound of this record is amazing. And the drum sound is fantastic. And I think maybe to capture some of that power live, he went with a little bit deeper toms. And I think that the bass drum, it would make sense because of that, musically for what they were doing, that he might want to go up a size on the bass drum. And when I look at pictures of the Counterparts kit, it looks to me like a 24-inch bass drum, a 16 by 24, I should Mm. note. Um, Now, what's very interesting is I think when he had that kit made, he had a 24-inch bass drum made and a 22 because... When you go to the uh, Canadian Museum of History, the manifest of the kit in in that um, on that website, that is a different bass drum. Everything is right. Everything is the counterparts kit as I know it. But the bass drum is a different bass drum. And they say it's a 22-inch bass drum. And it looks like a 22-inch bass drum. And the way that I know it's a different bass drum from the kit he toured with is that the kit he toured with, which you also see, I think I sent you a promo shot of that kit. Yes. With the blue front bass drum head. Yep. Um, notice that the tom bracket on the bass drum is a Ludwig tom bracket. That's like kind of the traditional Ludwig tom bracket, basically the same one they've used since the mid-60s when yeah. they started sort of doing a double tom post. Yep. Um, the counterparts kit on the uh, Canadian Museum of History website that's a Ludwig modular um, bass drum bracket that the Tom Polder is going into. Yeah. Um, so that is, I think that to me, that tells me that's a different drum. Same that's color. A different drum. Same, Same color. Yeah. So I think maybe he ordered two bass drums, not sure which one he wanted to use and ended up using the 24 on the tour. That's speculation. I don't know if anybody knows Please tell me. Please, please leave comments or or contact us. Let us know because I don't know the the answer to this. I don't know what the story is between twenty two inch and twenty four inch bass drums between basically the buddy the burning for buddy ninety one thing and all the way through the counterparts tour. So please tell me. I want to know. <laughs> Some but, someone will probably know and let yeah. you know. And this yeah, will, yeah, yeah. you know if they're this far into it. And so speaking of counterparts, I am going to brag a little bit. I got to. After the Counterparts tour, I got to meet Neil in New York City. And this is my original wow. Counterparts CD that I bought the day it came out. And uh-huh. Neil actually uh, signed this for oh, me. Oh, man, that's incredible. He, he, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's, you don't get many signatures from Neil, right? He was a little bit more elusive, kind he's of a very shy, very Paul Newman esque, hard to get. Yeah, he was very awkward around fans. If fans yeah. kind of did the normal, like, oh my God. I'm such a huge fan. I love your playing. You're such a huge influence on me. He would just get really like, oh God, I, this is so uncomfortable. Yeah, and he go would behind avoid, my mega kit. <laughs> yeah, he would. Yeah, he'd hide behind his giant drums and and he would try to avoid those kind of encounters. Um, I met him at one of the Buddy Rich scholarship concerts. There was one um, actually on my 21st birthday in 1994. Um, and um, I was able to get backstage. Uh, my drum teacher at the time, John Riley, 
and I went backstage and, um, and Neil was there. He wasn't playing. He was just giving a speech, but I got to meet him and talk to him for, um, a while after I initially calmed down and kind of approached him as though I didn't really care that much about him. I just kind of started asking him some questions and he was very nice and he signed my counterpart CD, which is still a very fun uh, memento to have. I'm sure on the um, inside you're freaking out, but you're kind of like, oh, whatever. It's Neil. <laughs> I was trying <laughs> to, to keep, keep it together. From, yeah, yeah, I was trying to keep it together to try to just like, okay, I'm just, you know, just, I know how to have a conversation with somebody. I'm just going to try to have yeah. a conversation. Um, but he was very nice. Actually, very. When, when you talk to him like a normal person, he was super friendly and chatty, um, yeah. which was really fun. So, um, and what was interesting is at that Buddy Rich concert in 94, he was in New York to do that concert and then had scheduled that week after that concert. I want to say it might have been on like a Sunday or something because the next week he was going to go in and take his first lessons with Freddie Gruber. Oh, he had wow. been hearing about Freddie Gruber and really wanted to study with him. And, um, you know, this is well documented many places, but Freddie got Neil, inspired Neil to really change his everything, his technique, his sort of physical approach to the kit and the drum set completely changes. And he switches again to another drum company, switches to DW and a completely new setup. And yeah. um, I think that's going to have to wait for part three. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I thought we were going to do it all in this um, one, but not but a we chance. Can't, not we a can't chance. almost, depending on how, if things get edited or whatever. I mean, we're almost two hours into this. Oh, and I'm two, sorry. I, no, no, I, you know, it's I like, it's I, great. I can't, I felt like I can't, I can't leave out the details of like, you know, what kind of sampler he used or what ply shells the Ludwig Super Classics were, what heads he used, you know, and I'm still skipping things. I'm not talking about the little hand, the fans that he had on his kit to dry his hands off between (laughs) tunes. I'm not talking about the drum key that he had mounted on his bass drum hoop. You know, there's these little details. He had an ashtray mounted on the left bass drum uh, on the candy apple red kit. I could go into detail about those things. I'm Damn. skipping. I'm actually skipping wow. things. This is me being <laughs> concise. So yeah. I'm sorry. It's still going on way too long, but um, no, it's, it's uh, not for people listening. It's not that like, obviously, and Paul knows it's not that it's going on too long. It's that you don't want to start something. That's a, an iconic era, similar to what yeah. happened in part one. You don't want to start the DW era, which a lot of people, which I grew up with yeah. at two hours into this. Cause I want right. to make sure people, people can get to it. So we will do a part three. Uh, I'll I'll find out if they come out in order. I may have one in between just to kind of break it up and give me some time to edit idea. a two hour mega needle episode. <laughs> but um, I think it's awesome. I rather I mean, this is uh, what I love about the show and, and topics like this is this will be on podcast platforms and YouTube, hopefully forever as a resource. So I'd rather get it you know, almost in the end, probably five or six hours worth of Neil, (laughs) you know, I mean, uh, considering that this was a band that played very long songs, maybe it's appropriate. You know, this is not the most concise (laughs) band in the world. So maybe it should not be the most, there's just a lot, there's a lot to talk about. And I, I hope that drummers enjoy this kind of detail the way that I do, but, uh, you know, I just think it's all really cool and I'm really excited to talk about it. So I'm, yeah. I really appreciate you giving me the platform to just, just completely geek out on this stuff. My pleasure. So, uh, everyone listening, thank you. Um, and I'll very briefly say, if you're still listening to this at this point, thank you to everyone who, um, uh, bought my friend Barry James book 
to help him with his cancer treatments. I've gotten a lot of emails. A lot of people have bought the book. Um, oh, that's wonderful. Want to get your hands on it? Barry was an original. Uh, one of the uh, he's one of the last living students of um, George Lawrence Stone, and it's Counting Stick Control is the book. Shoot me an email, uh, podcast at gmail dot com, and we'll get you all set up with that. But um, so. Paul, we will do it again. We will do yes. part three and we will bring it on home. And um, I'm honored wait. to have you're the first three parter <laughs> on the show. And I think it's great. Orange County had uh, one part one, part two, and then Q drum, which sort of goes with it. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's similar. A part three part is a dubious distinction, but you know, I'll take it. <laughs> it's I'm, I'm glad it's you. So, um, Paul, thank you for being here and we will see you on part three. Yes, thank you so much, Bart. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning.